you've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 18 for June of 2017. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about genre shows that are due for a rewatch, and our show topics this month include The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, which wraps up its first season next week, and Blood Drive, a crazy, wholly unique show that's starting its run on Sci-Fi on June 14th. And this month's interview segment is for Winona Earp, which begins its second season on Sci-Fi this weekend, and we are lucky enough to have a double interview this month. Uh, we have Melanie Scrafano, who plays Winona Earp, of course, and Tim Rozon, who plays Doc Holliday. And that's going to be a, an exciting interview segment to share with you later in the show. But we have a lot of interesting things that have been going on the last few months with our discussion topic, where hopefully you guys have enjoyed us going into the vault a little bit. And we're going to do it again this month with our shows that are due for a rewatch, some of which probably some folks have done many rewatches for over the years. Well, you know, one one thing I, I thought about, Mike, as we were compiling our list and I started thinking about it, you, you said a lot of people have done a rewatch, but as we get into it, it can be a daunting task with some of these shows we've chosen. Exactly. So can't wait to share those with you. But before we get too far into it, we do have some spoilers, mostly with The Handmaid's Tale today, although there are some season one spoilers for Winona Earp, but our Blood Drive segment is completely spoiler free. But in case you need to skip certain segments, here are the time codes for today's topics. Shows to rewatch. 218. The Handmaid's Tale. 1651. Blood Drive. 3625. Why no Narb? 4956. All right, Dave, and today's discussion topic, shows that are due for a rewatch. We've each picked three, as we always do. And these are shows that I've done some rewatching of in the past, but they really could use a rewatch. These are classic shows that have rewatchability, no doubt about it. And perhaps some of our listeners just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah. So I'll go ahead and start us off. And my first choice, and these are not necessarily in my order of preference, but the first one is Battlestar Galactica, which over four seasons aired 75 episodes which seems eminently doable. But I got to tell you, Mike, I've tried twice oh, yeah? to do a rewatch. And each time I watched the three hour, three night miniseries that preceded the, the actual series. And then for whatever reason, and, and truth be told, a lot of it has to do with our podcasting schedules. <laughs> but I, I just never seem to pick it up, even though it's such an awesome show. There's so much to like about it. Do you think we put the rose-colored glasses on a little bit in our memory of the ending, for example, and other things? Or do you think we still have a good perspective? Well, I think we have a good perspective. And, and I think the ending is one of the reasons I want to do a rewatch. I mean, certainly one of them is the ability now to look for clues as we try to identify who the Cylons are. And, and certainly that was part of the intrigue once we found out how many Cylon models there actually were. That would be fun, yeah. Yeah, trying to see if there were little clues that we should have picked up on, you know, certainly looking at developing relationships. And one of the ones that has always fascinated me more than anything is Adama and President Roslin. I, I just love them to death. And, and I just love how they start out. Maybe hate is too strong a word, 
but where they end up with that respect and, and certainly a certain amount of love for each other. Yeah, kind of adversaries becoming companions. Yeah. And then, of course, you mentioned the ending, which like Lost, which we'll talk about in a little bit, many people hated. I loved. I'm still not sure I've exactly understood what <laughs> the meaning of it all is, which I, I think I really want to watch it again. And I feel like I need to watch the whole thing to get me to that point. Yeah. I mean, for me, it would be Bear McCreary's music all along the Watchtower and all that stuff. <laughs> Chilling. That would make it eminently rewatchable for me. Well, I have one that might be a little bit easier for folks because it's only one season and that's Firefly. And I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners have already rewatched Firefly, perhaps multiple times. And I think it really does hold up very well as a rewatch as it becomes more and more of a classic show. This cult hit that only got such a small amount of time to develop itself. And you can rewatch it with the goal in mind of perhaps making up your own version of what would have happened if it had had time to develop. And I especially am thinking there of River Tam and perhaps the mythology, some more of her backstory I would have loved to have seen. Oh, my gosh. The, the final scene where she's up with Mal on the bridge flying serenity and you see he's really finally taken to her so, so as you said that's perhaps the thing i would like to see most yeah because so much is just left up to your imagination which is part of the magic of it honestly as a one hit wonder type of deal but it would be nice to go back and say oh wouldn't it have been nice to see this and of course one of the things you can do by not watching the movie is resurrect wash <laughs> by watching just season one. And it's nice to see him back in the dynamic again. Just pretend like that never happened. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, certainly the Whedon dialogue is at its best, I think in Firefly. So no doubt getting to experience all of those again is certainly worth it. And, and as you said, it's only 14 episodes, so yeah. <laughs> eminently doable. Now what's a little less doable is a rewatch of lost, yeah. which over six seasons aired 121 episodes that said i think it's worth it it's worth the time and it, it might take you a while it might take you a year or more to do it for me i watched it initially in real time right from the start and found myself watching each episode three times during the course of the week as we had our water cooler talk I mean, this was really at the, I don't want to say the beginning of the internet, but but kind of the, the infant stages of fan forums and things like that. So now to essentially be able to binge it without losing as much, I think might really be fun. Yeah. And I don't know if the loose threads would matter as much if you watched it that way. It would just kind of just blend into each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, Paolo and Nikki, eh, maybe maybe not quite such a big deal anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think I may have you beat, though, in terms of number of episodes. I'm going to go with another Whedon project for my second rewatchable show, and that's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is one of those shows that I think is more enjoyable if you just kind of pick some episodes to watch rather than maybe take on all of them, because there are seven seasons and 144 episodes. You know, there are certain ones that you can watch in isolation because that's how a lot of these 
supernatural shows were. They weren't necessarily completely serial. They did have some standalones. And a couple of my favorites are standalones. Uh, The musical episode, of course, once more with feeling, which other shows have attempted to duplicate and no one has ever come close to the glory of once more with feeling. And probably my favorite episode of all had almost no dialogue, at least for the first part of the episode. And that was hush where every single character had their voices taken away and they had to pantomime a good chunk of the beginning of the episode and to try and figure out what was going on. And I'll, I'll never forget in that episode when Buffy is trying to explain that they need to stake some vampires and she's making a gesture that looks more like a a rude gesture. And as she draws the blood of the vampires on the overhead projector, Anya, the ex demon just kind of is eating popcorn and enjoying the show. So I love that episode. I love Buffy and the, the memory of that show as dated as it might be at this time will never die. It will never diminish. (laughs) Right. And as you know, Outside of the pilot, I have not seen Buffy, but it's on my must-to-do list. And, and you know, it's funny because a lot of articles that I've read about, you know, 10 episodes of Buffy you must watch or whatever, and Hush is always on the list. I, I, I definitely have noticed that. So, Well, it's like the don't blink of Buffy. <laughs> oh, good comparison. So, All right. Now, my third show is Fringe. And even 100 episodes over five seasons. And look, there's a lot of reasons why I think Fringe is due for a rewatch. You know, one of them is the nuance of character, especially once we get into the multiverse, the red verse and the blue verse and Olivia and faux Olivia, which may be my favorite fan made up name for a character. (laughs) Yeah. And it's kind of stuck as the. A canon name for her now. Right. And, and close behind, though, is Walter in it. Yes. <laughs> but you know, the other thing about Fringe, and I guess it doesn't really have to do with why it's due for a rewatch, but I think it's really what brought Fox back on the map as a network that we might have a little bit of trust in yeah. after so many of our shows got canceled right. before their time. Yeah, that's true. It earned back some of its trust. Of course, then it followed up with things like Almost Human getting canceled on some other shows. So Fox still has a little ways to go, but Fringe was definitely one of its crowning genre achievements. And also on Fox, I believe, is my choice for a rewatchable show, but I kind of have to group The X-Files along with its predecessor, its inspiration in some ways, which is Twin Peaks. because. These two shows are definitely rewatchable, kind of in the same vein as what I said with Buffy, where you can just pick and choose some episodes to rewatch and skip over ones that maybe you know aren't necessarily your favorites. But there are so many to choose from, so many mythology episodes, so many standalone episodes. And now that we've got these reboots, I mean, season 10 of The X-Files was one of our first topics on Sci-Fi Fidelity. And now Twin Peaks just began its reboot run season three. They're calling it (laughs) Uh, began on May 21st. I think it's up to its third episode. Now it's about to air its fourth as we record this. And these shows are so from the same era that I couldn't separate them from each other. Now I watched 
the X-Files in its entirety when FX was running them one episode at a time each night. And I actually got caught up to the current season that way. But with Twin Peaks, I actually watched that in college. One of the first binge watches I ever did before there was such a thing, really. The dorm, I believe, the uh, the RA in the dorm building had a bunch of VHS tapes and was just playing them one episode at a time, kind of as a all-nighter. And we watched pretty much all of season one that way, where everyone was kind of having a big giant pajama party. And I remember that night with great fondness. <laughs> yep, and, and for me, the X-Files, I, again, I watched it from the beginning, but I taped each episode on my VHS tapes where I had six episodes on a tape because I didn't care <laughs> about the best uh, quality. Although in retrospect, I'm a little sorry. Of course, now I've got a basement full of VHS tapes. <laughs> but what I would do is each summer rewatch the entire show of course i remember that yeah of course once i got up to episode eight or nine it it became pretty difficult because at the end of the day the x-files had well over 200 episodes so right so like i said pick and choose but they're definitely rewatchable and i think a lot of people did embark on a twin peaks rewatch once they heard that the reboot was coming so i think that must have been an enjoyable excursion for a lot of people but wow we probably could make this list much longer but I think most people will agree with the ones we chose. But we're going to probably have to see what we can come up with for future months that are kind of in the same vein, because I think this this kind of discussion topic has a lot of resonance for folks. Yeah, absolutely. I do, too. We've been getting a lot of feedback. In fact, if I could uh, share with you some feedback we got, we don't usually do listener feedback on this particular podcast, but we got some really cool feedback from a listener that has been really enjoying hearing about some shows that we've been pulling out of the vault. So let me just share with you that really quick, and then we'll move on to our show topics. Hi, Mike and Dave. This is Scott from Cape Cod. I'm a longtime listener, first-time commenter to this podcast, although I've listened to some of your others, like Liberate, 12 Monkeys Uncaged, Sandbox, and uh, probably some others. I love your format, and I love your topics and your interviews. Your May topic is one that I related to, Shows that not enough people watched. To me, and you mentioned Charlie Jade. To me, Charlie Jade was a great show, and I was also introduced to it by Kevin Batchelder. In fact, he kindly lent me a copy of the series on DVD when it wasn't available anywhere else, at least in this country. I loved it, and I thought it was very reminiscent of Fringe in many ways. Some didn't like the slow pace, but I loved the atmosphere and mood of it all. Also, the multiverse storyline is one I always, I always enjoy. Now, on to your June topic, shows that are worth a rewatch. One show that immediately springs to mind is Person of Interest. I consider it the best sci-fi show ever, and I've watched tons of shows, and I don't say that lightly. If someone hasn't seen it at all, by all means, drop everything and watch it now. It's a, it's a great show. I, I watched Person of Interest right from the first episode because I wanted to see what Michael Emerson was up to after his great part in Lost. And how do you like that? He actually topped it. I can't say enough how awesome this show was. From the concept to the writing to the characters to the acting to the respect for the intelligence and attention span of its audience. They continually called back to forgotten moments in previous seasons. Even more than once, years later, all the way back to the pilot for crying aloud. Also, making the machine a beloved and, dare I say, well-acted character we all thought of as alive was quite an accomplishment. 
And the best joke of all was sneaking this magnificent science fiction masterpiece onto CBS in the guise of one of their procedural bore fests, <laughs> best way to put it. So I think this was virtually, and that pun was intended, a perfect show. And in the immortal words of John Locke, we're going to have to watch that again. Remember, if a show is remembered and loved, then it never really dies at all. So that was really great to hear. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. And if you guys can feel free to definitely write into us. You can use the comment section on the Den of Geek post or send us an email at sci-fi-fidelity at gmail.com. And we'll definitely share that if we can. But I definitely am excited to be talking about our first topic tonight, which is The Handmaid's Tale. We were going to talk about it last month, but decided to go with American Gods instead. And as that ended up being just an initial episode discussion for American Gods, I'm so glad we held on to The Handmaid's Tale, which is about to wrap up its full season. And I'm not sure it would have been as discussable as just a one or two episode discussion. So now we can talk about season one as a whole. Very spoilery. One last warning, but... Boy, what a great journey this has been for Hulu. Right. I mean, by the time you are listening to this, nine of the 10 episodes will have aired. And, and you know, I think a lot of you guys out there have read the book. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of the changes that have been made. But I think they certainly have all been for the better, if that's possible. Usually we don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> or just kind of a wash. Yes, exactly. And I think the adaptations that had to be made for television were completely logical. And narratively, it almost felt like a Margaret Atwood novel in terms of the flashbacks, which to me did not really feel like flashbacks. But for those of you who didn't know, this is a novel that was written in 1985 by Margaret Atwood. And in fact, it was even adapted already in 1990 with a movie starring Natasha Richardson, which itself was received well critically. So it's nice to see this adaptation doing well as well in longer form. Yeah. And that's an instance where I had to admit my wife was right because as I was telling her, Hey, you know, I've got the, uh, the screeners for handmaid's tale. Are you interested in watching it? She says, well, we saw the movie. I'm like, there's no movie. <laughs> she says, yes, there is. We saw it. <laughs> like, oh, you're right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a adaptable novel. It's kind of got that brave new world feel to it. And, and this one really, has some resonating factors as well in today's society that I think a lot of viewers probably clued into as well. But I, I love the Hulu model of airing shows. We've seen a few shows now on this network. We talked about 112263, the Stephen King adaptation last year, which also did it this way. Basically, they drop three episodes at the start. And I think Dimension 404 did this as well. And then they doled out one per week after that. So it had the binge worthy aspect to it, but then for episodic viewers, you still had a chance to jump in. And I think that really worked well for it. Yeah. I, mean, I think it gives you the best of both worlds. And, you know, again, like you said, they dropped one to three on April 26th and then one per week and they'll end on June 14. Yeah. I can't wait for the finale. Having just seen episode nine today, <laughs> earlier today, but the premise here, just really quickly, the weather patterns have impacted some of the world's ability to successfully grow crops. I believe there's some suggestion that there's a chemical taint in the soil or or making the food make everyone sterile. Not everyone, 
But I'm wondering if it's not just the women, maybe some of the men even. There's a very vague suggestion that some of the men might also be suffering from infertility. But obviously this has created a worldwide crisis where the population is not going to be growing anymore and drastic measures have to be taken. But it's not exactly what we would hope for humanity as things become super religious, super strict, and of course, extremely difficult for the remaining childbearing women who quickly become a commodity rather than treated as human beings. Right. Because, you know, we've lived in an era where gender roles have evolved. You know, women's rights have come a long way or are still evolving. But the other neat thing here is Gilead, the name of the country that the story takes place in, was formerly the U.S., so that it seems as if everything around it, and certainly we're only presented with Mexico and Canada to this point, you know, they, they're experiencing the same birth rate issues, but they have not pursued such draconian measures to cope with it, it doesn't seem. Right. This is religious extremism, trying to use biblical text to justify what they're doing to the remaining childbearing women and depending a lot on the role of Rachel in the old Testament. So yeah, the big question, the central question of this series seems to be, you know, who thought that this particular mode of society would be a good approach to addressing the low birth rate issue? Because it appears that although Mexico is having the same problem, they might actually not be dealing with it as well because they didn't go this extremist route. It's almost as though we're being led to believe that authoritarian rule is the only way to ensure that the childbearing women are used, quote unquote, the way that humanity itself needs them to. But what a horrible thing for human rights in general and, and equality of all people. Right. And, you know, we don't really see it and maybe we will in subsequent seasons because the show has been renewed for season two, but we do hear about how this transformation took place because you think like, all right, how could the religious right take over the country that, that has one of the most powerful militaries in the world? And they executed a series of, it seems precision attacks, taking out the white house Congress and the Supreme court. And I, I suppose it was, the surprise of it all that really allowed them to then come in and, and, and of course play on the fact that there are more deaths occurring worldwide than there are births. So probably in the, in the short term, that's not so big a problem, but long-term huge problem. In fact, there's one central quote that comes to mind that really encapsulates well, what, the society is doing. And it kind of reminds me of George Orwell's 1984 in a way where they say every love story is a tragedy. If you wait long enough, we only wanted to make the world better. And this is spoken by one of the uh, people in power. Better never means better for everyone. It always means worse for some, which what do they say in animal farm equal all animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others. There you go. <laughs> right. And, and I think it was the commander that says that. And, and certainly as the series goes on, we see him in a totally different light that he is, you know, the epitome of that powerful hypocrite 
who spouts the company line by day and then, uh, of course, ends up in, I guess, what we'd call a brothel slash sex club at night in what's supposed to be forbidden acts. But, hey, yeah, he's a man of power. So it's a political system that looks good on paper. And I think they really thought that they were doing the right thing. But then when they actually had to put it into practice, and I'm specifically thinking of the fertility ritual, the ceremony that they go through was something that they just kind of came up with in the back of a limo. Yeah. They said, why don't we make it so that the wives are there and having to do it is much different from the thought of using scripture to justify basically what is a rape. Right. It is. And, you know, going back to that question you asked a minute ago, who thought this would be a good approach to addressing the low birth rate issue? Because there are so many other ways that it could be done without, as you said, essentially subjecting these women to rape. I mean, in, you know, the case of June, well, she has a husband who clearly impregnated her. Why not? Okay, fine. We're going to force you two to stay together. We're going to force you here. And we're going to force you to, you know, have lots of babies, (laughs) have a child every 18 months or whatever, while not ideal, nowhere near the the situation we're presented here. So, well, that's that's what it boils down to, is that because these women are now seen as a commodity, as something to be traded. And we do get hints that Mexico might even be in talks with Gilead because they need handmaids themselves. It could have been much better, like you said, and I like your plan that you just came up with there, but it also could have been much worse. We've seen in other science fiction, you know, birthing farms where they're basically chained in stirrups a lot of times. So I I can think of much more horrific scenarios, but yeah, you're right. Once you bring in religion and feeling like you know better, what's better for everyone then obviously things are going to be a little bit more strict with the rules. And so it doesn't allow for things like arrangements for people to live their own lives in a more open, but still restrictive way. Right now, you know, there are some changes to the series relative to the book and, and, you know, some of them have to do with names, which I don't think are all, all that big a deal, but certainly one has to do with the commander's wife, Serena joy And really, even the commander who in the book are described as being much, much older than they are. And again, we understand why they made that change, because they're younger, more attractive, more vibrant, and it makes for better TV, perhaps. But the other thing with his wife, Serena, is that in the book, as I recall, that she was some sort of a religious, I don't know, televangelist, I believe. And here we don't necessarily know what her background is other than the fact that she's written several books, one of which has that quote, never mistake a woman's meekness for weakness. And what I love is that, you know, one of the major ironies centers around her role in bringing about the revolution only to be thrust into the subservient role as an important man's wife. And you almost wonder, well, didn't you think this is what was going to happen? And maybe she did. And maybe she's willing to go along with that. But it sure doesn't seem like it, you know? Yeah, it is interesting that they decided to include that detail of her feminist book that she wrote. Because, yeah, I think she must have some sort of religious aspect to her life. Because even when they were 
young newlyweds, they were still praying before they had sex. So there was that. But yeah, it's interesting because you have people like Aunt Lydia and probably all of the aunts are kind of like Lydia. But Lydia is particularly strict in her biblical view of the world and and very misogynistic way of looking at, at the role of women and how they should be subservient. She actually agrees with that view of things. But I think mostly what comes into play, especially with Serena and other characters is that there are very subtle uses of flashback. And I don't even want to call it a flashback. We just get these snippets of the backstory of how this all came to be. And part of it is Serena's tale showing how the ladies were excluded from those initial talks about taking over the white house and Congress and all that. And we have Luke's tale, uh, June's husband who initially we think just like June does that he's dead having opened the show with them running away and getting caught. And we hear those shots ring out, but we do see that he has escaped and perhaps there's hope for a reunion at some point. And even the little backstory that we got from Nick, which I think is a little bit still to be developed as the driver. He seems to be a rudderless ship, someone who's jumping from job to job. And now here he is as one of the eyes that, make sure that everything runs according to the rule book and will tattle on you if you're not. I mean, those were all little details that gave you the color of the atmosphere surrounding these folks. I mean, we get not only the backstory, but also just a hint at what it's like in present day. And it just gives you that full flavor. So that's why I don't feel like it's a flashback. It's sort of an elaboration for each of these details to be coming out. Yeah. And, and I mean, for me, what emerges right from the start is the desperation of the handmaids. But I think the beauty of, of how this is all presented is that, yes, they are desperate because, as you said, I mean, they're essentially being raped once a month. Yet, as it goes on, you see the desperation in the wives who are unable to have children because, you know, at first, I think we really dislike Serena Joy. But as it goes on, you really do feel sorry for her because it's clear it's a loveless marriage, at least on his end, unless he's got some twisted view of love. Yeah. And she's just as trapped in some ways as Offred is. But I think it's interesting that you mentioned the problems that they're having in their marriage because it's hinted at. And of course we do still have the finality to go, but I do wonder when they say, we all know what happened with your first handmaid, one of the other uh, wives says, and she tells Serena that men don't change. And we do have very small hints. Uh, well, I mean, we do see that the previous handmaid, the previous Offred did kill herself, but why did she kill herself? Did it have something to do with how the commander was treating her and, and, leading her on, so to speak, because we've seen what can happen even with of Warren and right. how she deals with a deceptive commander. Well, right. And June, and you know, you're calling her by her Alfred, yeah. handmade <laughs> name, right. And I'm going by June. And, and of course that's one of the, the differences as well, because in the book, I don't believe her name is actually ever revealed. And of course in the show, it is. I mean, it's certainly hinted at in the book. Interesting. I mean, it, it kind of is, but but here, you know, they lay it out there. But, you know, June certainly picks up on the fact that I'm not the first girl he's brought here. So, you know, like when you ask what 
led to the previous handmaid killing herself, something to do with the horror at having to play along it. And you see how it makes June physically sick. Yeah. To have to have sex with him, you know, in, in the episode when she wants to go back to pick up the package because she's decided to join the revolution. It's almost worse than the ceremony in some ways. Much worse because he's touching her intimately, which he's done. He's kind of you know, taken little baby steps along the way. Now, the other thing that strikes me is the racial diversity. Yeah, I thought uh, that, too. Because the book talks about African-Americans being basically taken out and shipped off. Yeah, I'm surprised that they didn't keep that in here as well. I guess they wanted to focus it for the TV show specifically on the women that are involved as handmaids, because it is called The Handmaid's Tale. But yeah, you would think this type of group would be a bunch of old white guys who had prejudices beyond just men being superior to women. Right. And, and even in, in the role of servants, and I, I think what makes more sense is what they've done for the television show in that if somebody has a skill, no matter skin color, religion, whatever, that if it can help the greater good, why would that not make sense to do? So, Well, one of the characters that comes into play in that vein is Moira, who is a great character, not only for the background story for June, but also right here at the end. Like you said, there was a big discussion whether or not June should join the, the revolution. She's ready to do it based on what's been going on around her throughout the first eight episodes. And now she has decided to do something about it. And Moira, who had so much fight in her when they first went to the Red Center for handmade training and had to be brought back into the fight by June, just right here before the finale. Yeah. And again, that scene when they reconnect and you know Moira just feels horrible because she feels as if she abandoned June as they were trying to escape. But of course, she did the only thing she could do. And we know at the time that June understood that. And I think, as I recall, June even gives her a little head nod like, yeah, you go. Exactly. You can get away. And uh, so she shouldn't feel bad. But but it's now that resignation. And, and as I said earlier, that desperation. But I think it extends beyond the wives of the powerful, beyond the handmaids, beyond the servants, uh, drivers like Nick. I wonder whether we're starting to see that through the commander as well, and that his desperation leads him to places like this sex club. Oh, yeah. Just trying to keep it together. This type of society is not tenable, even for the elite. Right. I mean, these are smart men. So it goes back to that question we've asked several times. Who thought this was a good idea? <laughs> exactly. And, and they have to understand the problems there. And, and I'm sure they do. But I think what's really just so enjoyable for me, especially since the show got renewed just a week after the premiere aired, I mean, it was a very quick renewal, is where they can take this because they can go so far beyond the book with this if it keeps going. Are they going to explore the resistance a little bit more? Are we going to be able to see the wider world? I mean, the possibilities are very exciting. Well, the epilogue, and I had to look this up because I, I knew it was in the future. I mean, the epilogue takes place in 2195. Oh, really? The 12th Symposium on Gilead Studies. 
And so it's, they're kind of looking back. Oh, historically. Yes. So when, when you say, where could they go? I, I, they could go anywhere. And, <laughs> exactly. and that's the beauty of it. So. Well, I can't wait to see where this show goes in its finale. I almost wish we could have included that in our discussion, but something to look forward to. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we move on to our other show? And that is the Sci-Fi Grindhouse series that's going to debut on June 14th, Blood Drive. And Mike, I, I don't even know what to say about this show. It, it is exactly the kind of show that I am not drawn to. In fact, very often I am repulsed by it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing I thought of. This show has absolutely no redeeming value. And that's kind of the point. <laughs> but I watched it. And from the opening minute, which doesn't even seem like it's going to be part of the actual show, but it is. And I'm just drawn into it. It's <laughs> I want to say it's good, clean fun, <laughs> but it's when not you watch good, it, clean fun. <laughs> that, that's the most absurd thing I think I could say. But this series is created by James Rowland. There'll be 13 episodes. It's going to air Wednesdays at 10 Eastern, as I said, beginning June 14th. And I love Sci-Fi's website. They call this the show that cable television will regret letting us air. Well, I love that they can do this because remember, Sci-Fi brought us shows like Helix, which tried to embrace its own ridiculousness, but it was too late because it had already been serious at the beginning. This show starts out embracing its ridiculousness, and I appreciate that very much because. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't right Hold now. it in. And our current faves. And Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, well, Grindhouse has a legacy behind it. It's not, you know, this show is not coming out of nowhere, right? Oh, yeah. Quentin Tarantino, for one. Yeah, exactly. So if you don't know the term Grindhouse... Films, television shows that are deliberately exploitative. So whether it's excessive sex, violence, blood, gore, all of which Blood Drive has. Yes. Fountains of blood whenever someone gets a limb cut off, for example. <laughs> right. Now, we're kind of, you know, as Mike alluded to at the beginning, this is going to be more or less spoiler free. I've seen the first episode. Mike's seen the first three but by the time this airs, the first one 
still is uh, four or five days away. So the trailer, if you've seen it, and I'd urge you to check that out, promises that each week of the series is going to feature a new grindhouse inspiration. Cannibals, monsters, cults, lawmen, nymphos, and Amazons. Yes, and that's true from what I've seen so far. I think what really I have to say, and I'm so glad that I didn't just stick with the opening episode, which was good, but I did have some problems with the premiere, and I would urge you to stick with it through the first three. And I would say that about any series, because it just starts to develop a backstory, a mythology behind what's going on with this blood drive and the state of the world, which is a post-apocalypse you know, how did this come about? It really starts to get this conspiracy mythology vibe that is part of a lot of people's enjoyments of genre shows like Lost and some of the shows we mentioned at the top of the show. Right now, I I wonder, for instance, the language is pretty rough, but you also notice shows like The Expanse. You've got characters dropping F-bombs. I don't want to say left and right, but there are a few each episode. And of course, they're edit it out. I mean, you can certainly read their lips. And, and as you've said that, that when it comes out on DVD, they put them back in, they put them back in. So, you know, certainly the version that we saw they're in they're in. Yes. But <laughs> I did notice, and I don't think I noticed this the first time I watched it, that on some of the sex scenes, you had that like a big black box. Yeah. They specifically put sensor bars over top of nudie bits and people having sex. Right. And it's supposed to be funny the way it looks like purposely absurd. Okay. Well, I didn't like it. Hey, what are you doing there? <laughs> All right. So, so you mentioned a, a dystopian future and I really love the fact that it's 1999 and, <laughs> yeah. and that's their dystopian future. We're in the California territories. We've got this cop named Arthur played by Alan Richson, who's, Forced to partner up with Grace Dargento, played by Christina Ochoa, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, if you look up Femme Fatale in the dictionary, her picture should be there. Yes, she is the perfect actor for the role. Right. It, it probably isn't there yet, but after 13 more <laughs> episodes. So they take part in a death race where the cars run on human blood, and we'll get a little bit more into that in a second. So I actually thought when I first started watching the show that it was going to be Cannonball Run with a lot of gore and there is a little bit of that, but I think that's actually not a fair comparison. There's so much more to the race. And in fact, there's not a whole lot of showing the race itself. It's mostly just what happens at each stop in some ways. Well, and what I'm, you know, you, you said you just thought the first episode was okay. I really thought it was great because as I started reflecting on it, you know, I look at the different characters and they are real characters that I really do feel are going to get developed. And on the one hand, you know, we're in this future where the police force has been privatized and their slogan is we kill because we care, which kind of reminds me of that mentality that we see in RoboCop's draconian methods. <laughs> yeah. But we've got this guy, Arthur, who his colleagues refer to as St. Arthur because he sees it as more than a job. He sees it as a calling, I think, because, you know, he tells that story about when he was a a young boy and he broke the law. He was old enough to be tried as an adult, but a cop gave him a second chance and he wants to do that as well. Yeah, but I like that because it's a privatized police force. 
This is all about meeting your quota and helping the corporation that's hired you to police their interests. So the captain wants 10 teeth by Friday, or I'll have yours instead. Right. No arrest reports. I don't need those. Just teeth. (laughs) And she goes around and she's got her little cup and the different officers pour the teeth in. (laughs) Oh, it's awesome. So Arthur, though, gets caught up in this warehouse that we learn is the starting point for the race, which is called the blood drive. And we're introduced to Julian Slink, who bills himself God of the stage. And he works for or with Heart Enterprises. And, you know, at first we see him as the ringmaster of this annual death race. But then as the episode goes on, we're introduced more and more to Heart Enterprises. So we see that whole idea of the evil corporation that has its hand in everything is going to be part of this story, which. Well, I I think Julian Slink is the star of the show and what will draw a lot of people in, in addition to the hotness of Christina Ochoa, but played by Colin Cunningham of Falling Skies. Did you recognize him under all that? I did not. (laughs) No, maybe it was the teeth in this one. (laughs) So what we see is uh, St. Arthur, he, you know, gets a tip. It's clear he doesn't really know what he's getting into. And in fact, he goes with his partner, uh, Christopher, who who is, again, a great character in and of himself in that he basically just wants to do the job. He wants to go home, have a good time. He, he, you know, it's like my shift's over. I don't care. But he's not going to let his partner go out on his own. So reluctantly, he follows him. So you, you have to admire the loyalty because he's not the noble lawman that Arthur is at this point anyway. No, but it's funny because you think that He's going to become a throwaway character, but he gets his own storyline that develops as the episodes go by. So great character that has his own story to tell. Yeah. So once they learn that there's something going on, so whether they think it's this this drug that's circulating around the town, they go there. And once they see that it's the two of them against dozens, maybe hundreds of very scary looking people, Christopher wants to call for backup. Arthur, who's kind of presented as maybe not the brightest bulb in the bunch, which I love (laughs) that Grace decides to call him Barbie because he's so pretty. And we assume by extension, not the brightest bulb either. Right. And I guess it must be said that when Arthur is paired with Grace as a partner in this race, this death race that's cross country, it's just for the entertainment value because it's like the hunger games. People are watching this race on TV. The elite have this as their entertainment. There's cameras in the car. It looks like three or four cameras at least. And and as you said, they end up paired together as she drives her red late sixties Chevy Camaro, which is an awesome car. And as, as you know, from knowing me, I love cars. So (laughs) have we mentioned by the way yet, that these cars run on blood. You did mention uh, that, right? I did, but <laughs> I they run say. on blood. So that said, until you actually see how they fill the tank and it's, I mean, well, gas is like 60 bucks a gallon, right? Oh, Something it might like even that. be more than that, but, but yeah. <laughs> um, but the other thing is the rest of the city, the cars must not run on blood. Right. Because Arthur's shocked when he finds out. 
Exactly. I found that interesting. So <laughs> it, it, it just may be this race. And, you know, what we learn is this is an annual race. The winner gets $10 million. And this is the first leg of it from Los Angeles to Arizona. And we are introduced in the opening scene, as we said, to Grace. She's got the the hot red Chevy Camaro. Of course, if you're going to enter a race, I mean, proper attire is critical. So Daisy Duke shorts. OK, check <laughs> crop top. Check. OK, red lollipop that you're sucking on the entire time. Check. OK, <laughs> yeah. so I, I, that's the uh, ingredients to win a race for sure. <laughs> uh, each day, the racers are given a prescribed route. But the kicker is and, and again, we've seen this before. You know, it's I almost want to bring out the word trope for some of these things. This is Grindhouse. Of course, it's a trope so that they're implanted with the device in their neck so that they can't separate from their partners. They can't leave the race. And I mean, again, I forget what what it was. They, they put a ring around the guy's head. And if you go too far, your head blows up. And I mean, we've seen this exactly. concept before. Certainly, that's that's definitely it. Like you said, it's something we recognize from these types of shows that are race oriented, but there really is nothing like this show blood drive out there. This is one of the first things like this that I've seen where it's purposely over the top. Right. And the last place finisher dies, but uh, you know, there's a nice twist there. And then I love when Arthur gets caught in the warehouse as the race is preparing to get underway. Julian asks the crowd to make a decision about Arthur, the policeman. Friend or fuel? <laughs> they all want him to be fuel, actually. <laughs> exactly. And then as Grace tells Arthur, nobody makes it to the blood drive without a little psycho behind the eyes, pal. And of course, you know that through the course of this season, these guys are going to bond. They're going to be hating each other, reluctant partners, and start to realize each other's merits over the over the course of time. Because... That's how the buddy cop type shows work. Right. And, and the fact that Grace wants to win so that she can save her sister from something and set the two of them up for life is her motivation. And then did I mention evil androids? <laughs> no, you didn't. But that would just be what it was missing. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, you got to check it out. I am amazed that I love it. But God, I do love it. And that's the thing. I was going into it with an open mind because I knew we wanted to talk about it, even if it was ridiculous and we wanted to make fun of it. But then when I got to the second or third episode, I'm like, you know what? This is getting pretty good, <laughs> which I was surprised to find. So if you like B movies, check out blood drive. It is definitely something that's unique in terms of television series. We've seen B movies like this, but never a series like this. So I hope people are able to check it out and enjoy it for what it is. All right, well, another show that might still be flying under people's radars if the ratings are an ind indication that really deserves your attention. I mean, it really is a hidden gem, and that's Winona Earp, which will be the topic for our interview segment this month. And we were so fortunate to talk to not one but two Winona Earp cast members who are very excited to talk about this show that really is close to their hearts just as much as, as it is close to the fans' hearts. So let me just introduce uh, Melanie Scrifano, who plays the title character of Winona Earp. She's first in this segment. 
She was previously seen as Tia Tremblay on The Listener, and she recently did a four-episode arc on Designated Survivor, which Dave was going to ask her about in this interview. And then we're going to talk to Tim Rozon, who will join us to talk about his character, Doc Holliday. He was previously on another Emily Andrews show, Lost Girl, and he was also on Being Human. And he's a rabid comics fan, which I think a lot of the people who follow his work know. So let's go ahead and hear what Melanie and Tim have to say about season two of Winona Earp, which premieres June 9th at 10 p.m. Thanks so much for joining us today. This is a, a real treat, especially since we've been anticipating the return of Winona Earp for quite some time now. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, uh, Melanie, Sci-Fi's current lineup features a lot of strong women leads, including Van Helsing's Kelly Overton, Dark Matters' Melissa O'Neill, Killjoy's Hannah John Kamen. And, and for you, the, the episode I Walk the Line really seems to embody Winona's character in that you know, she's walking that line between good and evil in a lot of different ways. I mean, is that what makes Winona so compelling? I think so. I think part of the appeal is that the show, just like the character, it's not just one thing. I remember somebody telling me before the show started airing, I cannot wait for your show. I'm so sick of drama. And <laughs> it seems like everything on the air right now is just dramatic. There's no, you can't have a laugh during the drama. And I think um, our show does a great job of walking that line. And it's just a bit, you know, more dimensional. So you just get to eat more flavors of ice cream. Yeah, I mean, she seems like a good person who's willing to do bad when it helps the greater good, I guess, if you will. Yeah, a lot of this season involves making really difficult choices. And a lot of times the choices that she feels she has to make will involve a huge sacrifice for one of the other characters, which makes her really compelling um, stories because of course we all have that where we feel in our lives that we're, we're doing the best we can, but sometimes it just uh, might screw someone else over. <laughs> now, one of the things that also appeals is the action. And of course the trailer that's currently out for season two features a lot of that. And I'm curious to note if we're going to be getting a lot more action out of your character and what kind of weapons and fight training do you have to go through for each episode? You know, what's your favorite part of the action aspect of the show? I know that uses her hands a lot this season, if I'm not mistaken. I think, I think a lot of the, um, the fighting that I did was, it was a lot of pistol whipping and, and just, this season is very personal for Winona. I mean, of course it was last season, but this season is even more so if that's possible. So a lot of the fights come out of really deep emotion, which I, I remember talking to Steve McMichael, our stunt coordinator, and just saying, just let me, let me go at him with my hands because it's so personal. So that was really fun. Most challenging was probably not being allowed to do every single but there was one in particular where I was like, oh, please let me do it. And they were like, you're not even allowed to be on the set when we do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so dangerous. Okay. Well, now you just mentioned the, the emotional aspect of it. And, and please feel free to give away any season two spoilers that you want to. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the relationship that we saw in season one between the Earp sisters, and obviously we got a lot of looks at Winona and Waverly early on. But I guess in season two, Winona's now got to cope with the fact that Willa 
essentially just used her throughout season one. And now Waverly may or may not be her flesh and blood sister. What what can you tell us about that? Um, not yeah, much. <laughs> I, not much. Well, I can say it's just, I, and I've said it before, it's like Winona starts on a, in a, a really low place and it just gets lower. <laughs> so, yeah, I think feeling like Willa betrayed her, I don't think she can really even accept that. I don't, I think Willa will always be her big sister who she adores. And I don't think she'll ever truly be able to see her as a villain. And just like with Waverly, I think it would be difficult for Winona to see her as anything but what she is, which can definitely endanger Winona for not being able to see things as as they really are instead of what she wants them to be. Ooh, that was smart. (laughs) Smart. I wish I had said it better, but it was really smart. (laughs) Speaking of Waverly, though, uh, a big part of the show and fans' interaction with the shipping angle of the show uh, has to do with her relationship with Officer Hot. Mm -hmm. But, of course, the shippers are all over the place with your character as well. And it's a curious thing because we're not sure whether or not we should even be rooting for Doc versus dolls, or whether or not we should just have her fly solo. I mean, do you like that aspect of the character that it's left as a question mark? Yeah, I, I like the complexity of of these two guys who offer her things just as human beings, not as men or women, but just as human beings. They they offer her things that she needs right now. She needs people to believe in her. She needs people to. Um, provides stability to counter her instability. So I like that. I also like the idea that she's too busy to choose. So, you know, she's not trying to be cruel, but it's it's sort of like um, I care about you both, but I'm not willing to um, to choose because I, I've got bigger fish to fry right now. So you guys... Exactly, exactly. Yeah, saddle up and come along or stay here. <laughs> Well, do you think she trusts them both at this point? Um, uh, I... A very cryptic pause. <laughs> yeah. Can I just leave it at a cryptic pause? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, <laughs> right. well, well, let's shift gears a second to the uh, Winona Earp IDW comic and your collaboration with, with creator Bo Smith. Uh, you know, how, how did that come about and... Can you give us the genesis of the Earp sisters story? And, and do you have any plans to continue working with him on the comic series? I don't actually know how it came about. I, uh, that would be a bow question, but how did, I don't even remember. It's like, it's like we just started dating. I, like, I just don't remember how it happened, but um, yeah, he just <laughs> sort of asked me to um, collaborate. He said, Tim is doing one which didn't surprise me because Tim is a huge comic book fan and has always been. Um, so then they asked me, which I thought was a huge mistake, but they, <laughs> you know, they sort of thought I had a good grasp on Winona's voice and that I'd be able to write her. And they also liked the idea of my perspective on um, the Earth Sisters. So yeah, I sort of jumped at the chance to be able to write funny dialogue, but also touching stuff and but it was terrifying and it was um i still i haven't read any reviews i I don't i have no idea how it went from an outside perspective (laughs) 
Um, and I don't want to. It's too, you know, I did my best and um, had a blast and made me grow as an actor as well because you're looking at the story from um, a broader perspective when you're writing for other characters as well. And I really hope that there is another one in our future. But uh, I can't for sure. All right. Well, one thing that you've been busy with in the hiatus is a really cool mid-season arc on Designated Survivor in which you actually played a blonde rather than a brunette. <laughs> that yeah. was a very different experience for Winona or fans, perhaps. And I'm just curious, what was that experience like and, and how did you approach that character, especially with the hair color change or whether or not that even makes a difference? <laughs> no, the hair color change, I just watched something that I was a blonde in on my uh, demo reel and I was like, oh, that I look really different. But yeah, playing it, it didn't, maybe it should have affected me more than it did. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Designated Survivor was really fun. Obviously a really different world that I know absolutely nothing about. But I love that story idea because it's sort of very Winona in the sense that, you know, this man gets just dropped into the role of basically a leadership role that he does doesn't necessarily think he's equipped for. So I just found it interesting to sort of watch those parallels play out in front of me. Um, yeah, it was it was also just really challenging because, you know, you don't want to play the same character all the time. So I'd be desperate to make a sex joke in a scene <laughs> because it was just like, you know, this handed to me on a platter and I just couldn't because I'm not allowed to just ad-lib crazy stuff on other shows. But it was really fun, and I made the blooper reel, so that's all I'm. That's all I really care. <laughs> now, now, do you do a lot of ad libbing on Winona Earp? Yeah, I um, I, I just sort of yeah. As long as it's in character, I love to ad lib and see if it makes it into the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of a challenge. I'm like, how funny am I? And then I just, <laughs> but yeah, I I do a lot. But sometimes I'll just do one take of it. That way, if it's stupid, I don't. They don't have to tell me to stop and then ruin my self confidence. <laughs> so yeah, it's really fun though. Well, that's great. Yeah, and it certainly shows. I think the spontaneity is really, really worth uh, sneaking in there. But yeah. we're very much looking forward to when this podcast comes out. It will be the day of the premiere uh, of Winona Urban. I know it's, it's been, uh, anticipated for quite some time. So thanks so much for joining us and talking to us about season two today. Thank you. And please edit out any spoilers I may have given. Okay. I will do. I will lose my job. <laughs> All right. Oh, uh, I don't think so. But <laughs> thank you so much, Melanie. Thanks guys. All right, Tim, want to thank you for joining me today on sci-fi fidelity. Good to have you here. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's jump right into it because Erpers more than likely know your work on Lost Girl as Massimo the Druid, who, you know, for me was a difficult character to like. I, I covered Lost Girl on another podcast. Doc, on the other hand, quintessential heroic bad boy. I mean, what is it about playing Doc that attracts you the most? And, and I'll give you a chance if you want to say anything good about Massimo. You know, it, it's funny because I've throughout, especially this year, uh, I've got to meet so many uh, fans and so many Erpers, and I, I actually met a lot of Lost Girl fans. And, you know, I know right away when, when people are really fans or not, because the people come and say, I love you as Massimo. I said, no, you didn't. <laughs> if you loved me as Massimo, I did my job wrong. 
But some people would say, you know, I felt bad for Massimo. That I understood. Because, you know, for me, I felt sorry for Massimo. He just wanted to please his mom in kind of creepy ways. But he just didn't feel love and he was trying to fit in. And and in a lot of ways, you know what? Doc Holliday is the same way. Uh, he doesn't fit in. He's a man out of time. And uh, I love those flawed characters. Uh, I, I think they're super fun to play. But, yeah, getting to play uh, Doc Holliday, it's just a literal dream come true. It's, it's, it's everything. It's, it's the part I've been waiting for my whole life. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you have a historical character who, quite frankly, is still larger than life. And, and you know, I, I wonder if they wanted you to do any research or just, you know, maybe bring a fresh take to, you know, the, this outlaw lawman. You know, when I got the part, I knew exactly who Doc Holliday was. I've seen uh, Dennis Quaid's portrayal and Val Kilmer's and, and all the different portrayals on TV and movies of Doc Holliday. And, of course, Tombstone really stuck out with me. So I purposely made sure whatever I did was not to watch Tombstone again. You know, I'm not going to try and do what someone else already did. But uh, not to sound too cliche, but I honestly felt like that character was inside me. And, yeah, I did research. I mean, I made sure you know, that mustache takes four months to grow. But if you look at the, the real pictures of Doc Holliday, he's got a big mustache. He didn't have a little pencil in mustache. He had, a, he had quite a mustache. Uh, I also made sure I got a replica of the Colt Thunderer, uh, which was his gun. Uh, and I ordered it in uh, from out west, and I had a replica of my house. So I had a gun walking around my house just trying to get the uh, in and out of its holster quick enough, thinking, you know, because he was the deadliest man alive with a, with a six-shooter, if you would believe that from TV. Uh, when I did more research, he might have killed a man or might not have. It's mostly hearsay and rumors at this point. You know what I mean? He was a notorious gambler and one of the best poker players around. But as a killer, it's never really been proven. He was there at the OK Corral. He was a great friend of, and probably only friend he had was Wyatt Earp. But he never really killed anybody there. He might or might not have killed Johnny Ringo. We don't know. So, yeah, there's a lot of gray areas when it comes to Doc. So, yeah. Yeah, and you you know you mentioned the I mean not I guess not really weapons training, but just getting comfortable holding the gun, as you said, practicing drawing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that is that something you you continue to do as the series moves into season two? Mm-hmm. Well, listen, you I'm so lucky, and this production's so great. So like they brought us in kind of early. Like the first day I met Dominique uh, Provost Lee Waverly, she was uh, holding a sawed-off shotgun. Shamir had a nine millimeter Glock. And I had a cold thunder, and we were out of firing range learning to shoot. So uh, to say awesome is an understatement. But we did we actually did a lot of firearms training, and uh, throughout the season, they, they're always out to take uh, Shamir or I whenever we want to go down and shoot. He kind of Shamir gets more of a kick out of the shooting part than I do, but I love just practicing for what I feel Doc would be would be really good at. And it's funny because I practice mainly trying to spin the gun, you know, like you see on TV. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, when I met the gun handler, the professional guy who was an ex-cowboy and historian, he's like, nobody does that. That's not real. Don't do that. Doc Holly would never spin his gun. <laughs> so, and I got pretty good at it. But it's funny because we always have it, like, we use different directors. And a couple of directors, I was like, hey, can you, can you spin it, though? Like, walk away spinning it. And I'm like, that's not what he would do. And they're like, yes, Tim, but it looks really cool, so just do it. So a couple of times, you'll still see me throwing in a spin. I actually feel like I'm fighting against what the character would do, but I'm hoping it looks pretty cool. All right. Now, and obviously one of the uh, 
issues with doing interviews like this. Uh, th- this podcast is going to come out a few hours before season two, episode one airs. So I understand, sure. you know, you, you can't give away any spoilers. But I mean, what's Doc's biggest struggle navigating the 21st century been? And is there anything that you can tell us about season two that, you know, might address that? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where he's just, he's a man out of time, right? But we didn't really, really get into it, and we don't really, really get into it. And uh, Emily Andrews, the show creator, really had a good answer. Because, you know, you, I have so many questions. I'm like, well, why didn't he do this? Wouldn't he be scared to get in the car? What about this? You know, like, Doc's not afraid of a demon. He'll fight and shoot with the best of them. But getting in an elevator is terrifying because he's never done it before. You know what I mean? But what she said made a lot of sense to me. She's right. He was such a good poker player. You never knew what he was, Doc was thinking is one of his greatest strengths is hiding his weaknesses. So that's the way we kind of approach that. I will say this about season two. Season one, I had one goal, and, and that's pretty much how I played the whole season. That's why I kind of flirted between good and bad, uh, whatever good or bad is. But Doc was kind of always selfishly after his own thing, and that was revenge. He wanted revenge for being trapped in that well. And then, of course, we got the revenge. Uh, in season one. So season two, I was like, hmm, well, what's Doc want, right? Because he got his revenge. But I think we're going to learn in season two, there's things bigger than all of us and, and things that are more important to all the characters than just revenge or selfishly themselves. Because I, I honestly believe season one, all the characters are kind of selfish. Even Winona Earp. I mean, it's a very selfish character. She's the best. But she's selfish. She's going to kill the Revenant no matter what it is and no matter who gets in her way. And it's like in a lot of ways, the only character that wasn't was kind of the Waverly character. Waverly was like the only one who thought about all the other characters. And I think that's why she resonated so hard is because it was like the rock of season one. So that's another spoiler for season two. Get ready for season two because Waverly isn't the same nice young Waverly as last year. Well, well, the the season finale certainly sets that up in, in an awesome way. Uh, Now, I want to shift gears for a second because it's well known that you've been a huge comics fan. And I believe I I read that you said since the age of eight. So, you know, how have your Mm -hmm. tastes changed over the years? Uh, They haven't. Uh, You know, I'm still a Silver Age uh, aficionado at heart. Uh, I do like some of the newer books, you know, and it's funny because it was on Lost Girl uh, where Ksenia Solo, who played Kenzie, turned me on to a book called Lock and Key, which was an IDW book, which ended up turning out to be one of my favorite books. And it's weird later that I would end up working for IDW and meeting these guys and telling them like, yeah, I love your book and, and actually be able to mean it. There's some other books now I really like. I really love uh, Image has a book called Lazarus. If you've never read Lazarus, it's amazing. Um, another strong female lead actually in that book. Uh, and then of course I love uh, Six Gun love those books and i've been reading them before i got this part so it's kind of like you know everything happens for a reason and all that stuff but it's all true it, it all kind of does now is there a comic you'd love to see brought to television and and i assume be part of the cast this is a question i get asked a lot and i wouldn't want it my favorite character of all time is the silver surfer there was a silver surfer cartoon i do own the old dvds of it it was uh, super amazing but I think he's one of those guys who's trapped in that Marvel-Sony deal of, of stuff, you know what I mean? So I'm never really going to get him. Because if not, the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe really looks like it's heading towards the uh, Infinity Gauntlet storyline. And 
Silver Surfer was a huge part of that in the comic, but unfortunately it looks like I'm not going to get it in that movie, and I would love to love to have it. Man. So, you know, hopefully they can work out all the stuff. It's looking good. You know, they got Spider-Man now, so they weren't supposed to have him. I don't know. I don't know all the, the details of that, that deal, but if they could ever get the Silver Surfer out, I'd love to see that, more of that. Oh, that's cool. Now, now you mentioned IDW, and, and of course, you got a chance to co-author an issue. And, and, you know, I guess naturally that first issue focuses on your character, but do you want to continue with IDW and perhaps write for some of the other characters as well? Mm-hmm. So I'm actually going to correct you on two things. It was two issues I got to write with Bo last year. And I'm also going to, it was supposed, when, when he approached me, it was supposed to be a Doc Holiday uh, legend book. And I guess for marketing, it made sense that I would be the one to write a very Doc-heavy book. But I told Bo right off the bat, I don't want to write a Doc Holiday book. I want to write a Winona Herb book. Because that's what this book is, Winona Herb. And in so many ways, she's my favorite character. She's Winona. So we, we did a Doc-heavy book. But at the end of the day, it was more important for me to have a really a good Winona story. So we kind of created this villain from scratch that would kind of be the ultimate villain that Winona's never faced and he kind of challenged her in ways that she hadn't been challenged before and it wasn't just physically it was you know a, a, a mental foe a, a person who didn't care about dying because the thing they feared the least was death so that was kind of my main goal with the writing and I'm actually about halfway through writing uh Bo and I right now are working on a five issue story called Winona Herb Zero which will take time in uh kind of like the, the TV show kind of touched on it it was the time before she came back to purgatory just before she came back to where the tv show starts she had spent some time away and we never figured out where it was well bo and i kind of answered that question and she was actually with this gang called the banditos that were a bunch of ex-mercenaries and it's a five issue arc of her time kind of dealing with that and then it comes back to now and then i've got the, the characters from joe in the book dealing with winona's past and some of the people that came to haunt from that so we just finished issue three of that. Issue one will probably be coming out in stores uh, close to Comic-Con time. So July is July. And I'll start working on issue four next week with Bo. So yes, am I still working with IDW? Yes. Did, we, did I love the experience? More than anything. Probably more than acting. Do I want to write one by myself? Probably not. Only because working with Bo is the greatest thing that I've ever done with my life. He's the most humble man ever. And he's like a guide, and he's just so good with me, and he's taught me so much that I just never want that to end. And we honestly have so much fun together doing it that why would I want to change anything? I just, if I could just keep doing this the way I'm doing it, I'll do that. I know I just spoke wow. a lot, and I'm sorry. No, oh, that's awesome. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I'm so looking forward to that, and, and I'm so glad to hear that you had such a wonderful experience with it. Well, listen, Tim, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Sci-Fi Fidelity. I know I speak for everybody that we just can't wait for Friday night mm-hmm. and the season two premiere of Winona Earp. Good luck, and thanks again. Oh, of course, thank you so much. And you should know right now I'm speaking in a, in a car. That's because I'm driving 450 miles to Toronto so I could be with some of the cast on Friday for the live tweets because we're I think the cast is more excited for Friday than probably the fans we cannot wait yeah and and obviously that's a huge part of the fan experience for Erpers well we love live tweeting or we wouldn't do it you know what I mean it was I think a bunch of us have never done it before it was just such a wonderful experience last year that we can't wait to do it again these Erper people the fans are just they're magical they're just beautiful human beings 
Well, Tim, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, I, I like that last part that Tim shared about the live tweet because I think Erpers are amongst the most rabid live tweeters of any show out there. So they, they've got a, a run for their money of, in terms of enthusiasm. Yeah. I mean, the show may be flying under the radar in, in terms of viewers, but the fandom is through the roof. Rabid. <laughs> oh, my God. Absolutely. <laughs> so hopefully you're enjoying that show as well. We've got a lot of new shows to be talking about as summer gets started off. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in July, we'll be discussing Killjoys on Sci-Fi and possibly The Mist on Spike TV. Hmm. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we do take suggestions for future discussion topics. Just let us know on social media what you'd like us to talk about. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month.